Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Lights, Camera, Sports. I'm your host, Mike Galtieri. So happy to be back for another podcast edition, as we're lucky enough to be joined by Michael Freeman. He's the executive director of the Capital Region Development Authority in Hartford, Connecticut, in the Connecticut area. Mike, thanks so much for checking in with us. We're going to change up a little bit today. Usually we talk solely about sports, but uh, we'll have a little sports discussion today, but also about development. Fair enough. Well, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, talk about your career. I know you're from the Fairfield County area, uh, and you went to uh, UConn. Yeah, actually, I'm a Connecticut kid. I uh, grew up in the farms out in uh, Avon, and then later in, uh, uh, as the farms were closed down uh, in sort of the small factory towns of Bristol and um, Southington, which are you know all within about 15, 20 miles of uh, the Hartford Center. And did you always have a idea to get into this line of work in terms of development, economic development? Not a chance. <laughs> Who knows? You kind of backdoor into these things. Uh, I actually was going to go to the Naval Academy, you know, and wow. like every kid who grew up in the 60s, become an astronaut at some point. So, um, you know, closest thing to being an astronaut is flying around the city sometimes. So uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, you know, but uh, economic development really came out of I was a Yukon kid and had an economics background. And then I went on to uh, get a public finance degree in Washington and uh, did... Uh, did about 10, 10 years in, in D.C., working both for um, federal government as well as a congressional uh, banking committee, and then uh, migrated back to Connecticut in the 80s and been doing uh, urban development either as a banker or as a, um, a public official in one capacity or another uh, since. Wow, let's just backtrack a second. What was your time like in D.C.? I was crazy. I was a presidential intern for um, uh, Jimmy Carter. And wow. um, got to work with, um, you know, crazy as it sounds, I got to work with Indian tribes throughout the Midwest and Far West. So, kid from Connecticut, that was, uh, that was, you know, that was akin to, you know, going to the edge of the planet. Um, but uh, so I did on that. I worked on that. Then I worked on some urban issues and got engaged working in the South Bronx when it literally was uh, on fire. Um, yes. And uh, got got the uh, you know my my juices going on urban development based on my South Bronx experience, and uh, that eventually led me to um, working in the cities in Connecticut. And I started off in Bridgeport for about 12 years, and worked with a bank down in Bridgeport for five, and then I went to Stanford, and did another little stint in New York, um, in Westchester County, and then I came up to Hartford uh, about four and a half years ago. I just you got to give me a story about uh, working with Jimmy Carter. Going back to that, it must have been an enjoyable experience. Yeah, it was uh, you know, hey, I was a kid, you know, it was it was um, you know, it was pretty pretty special time. But you know, you don't looking back, you, I don't know if I fully appreciated it, but um, you know, it was uh, it was uh, pretty heady. So yeah, so you went. You're now in Hartford. First of all, I'd like to get just a you know expanding view the differences between Fairfield County and the Hartford area. In terms of Connecticut development, uh, entirely different marketplaces. Um, uh, Fairfield County is really New York oriented. Um, uh, they don't even watch Connecticut TV down there. Um, they think the mayor of uh, uh, you know their city is there's De Blasio. You know, what I mean, it's yes, just New York City, it's a yeah. different place. Um, the marketplace is different. The the demographics are are different. Um, and as a consequence, uh, what happens in Hartford versus what happens in Fairfield County is really two different stories. Well, how, how do you define the demographics and the differences between the two? Uh, wealth, primarily, um, as well as economic base. Um, Fairfield County is, for the most part, financial-oriented, financial services. Um, some tech, but mostly financial services. 
Um, there is a great deal of wealth that's oriented to um, uh, the New York City marketplace, uh, whereas uh, Hartford is really more reflective of Connecticut. Um, it's more manufacturing-based. Now, Connecticut is split up in multiple ways, but it's basically an older manufacturing state. And the Hartford area is really a reflection of that. I mean, you have, obviously, the insurance companies uh, that are in Hartford and the state government that's in Hartford. Um, but for the most part, the Hartford region and, and really the Hartford-New Haven corridor is an old industrial belt. And so it has a different dynamic uh, than what had been developed along the, uh, you know, basically the highways and the rail spurs coming out of New York. Well said. And now, so you're in the Hartford area, and I, you know, I go back a lot. I'm in the area. Uh, it's amazing the, the amount of new apartments downtown. Can just talk about that. I see seven, seven, seven Main Street, the Spectra Apartments, uh, new apartments in Pearl Street. Talk about the the new development in downtown Hartford. For the yeah, Hartford. Uh, the- Capital Region Development Authority, which I head up today, was created in 2012 uh, with the uh, intention to jumpstart residential growth in the downtown core. Um, And that's what we've been working on. We've been essentially taking buildings that have had no use or have been underperforming or basically not performing uh, and repositioning them. Um, 777 Main, which is the single largest of them, was the former uh, headquarters of the Old Connecticut National Bank, which was absorbed into the Bank of America structure. And uh, Bank of America pulled out uh, some 12 years ago, and the building was empty for eight. Um, and uh, we uh, basically revamped the entire property from about 300,000 square feet uh, to two, it converted it to 285 residential units. Um, so that that has been the single biggest project, but not necessarily... Uh, the only one. We've uh, converted an old hotel uh, to another 200 units, so we've taken some other real estate and given it new use, including uh, some state offices in one case. Uh, another case, we've uh, converted an old building, the old Hartford Times, building into the Yukon campus downtown. So there's a variety of um, efforts to reposition uh, formerly fallow real estate. Uh, we essentially doubled the number of apartments downtown in the last four years, and we look to do that again. We look to double it one more time. Are you happy with how they're leasing, and what type of demographics are moving into these apartments downtown? Yeah, the lease rate's actually ahead of our expectations. Um, there, not only is the uh, occupancy or or the the absorption of the units uh, ahead of ahead of uh, our projections, but the rent levels are actually a little higher than we had assumed as well. Those are both positives in that they they help us attract additional private capital to the next string of deals. Um, generally downtown, uh, it's fitting a very similar pattern you see developing across the country is a uh, younger uh, millennial workforce uh, that is uh, uh, targeted uh, for the large employers in this region, whether it's travelers or UTC, uh, and they are attracted to the urban market. What was happening in Hartford was the product wasn't there. Uh, by putting the product in, uh, you know, relatively speaking, uh, high amenity buildings, um, you know, with the, the, the gyms and the and the dog wash stations and the bike storage racks and, and wireless service and coffee shops, um, the type of things that uh, are demanded by the young in an apartment building in Boston and New York, 
uh, were not in downtown Hartford until just recently. By putting them in, uh, we've attracted uh, the, the very same labor force that uh, the travelers and the Aetna and the Hartford all want as part of their next generation of uh, talent. So um, that has worked well for us. Uh, there's a, a, a good percentage that are foreign. Um, we've seen a lot of engineers coming in uh, from Asia and India um, and they have absorbed a good percentage of the marketplace. There's a lot, the average age, I say, is probably between 30 and 45, uh, mostly single. Um, and uh, we're not seeing the empty nester uh, syndrome that you might see in some places. Uh, we're not quite getting that. Um, we're building all market rate housing. We're not, we're not building affordable, though a percentage of the units are affordable. Uh, the intent is to develop a marketplace economy so we can increase discretionary income, which helps drive retail and, and restauranting and entertainment. So um, the strategy is a little bit more complicated than it has been historically uh, in Hartford, but uh, we're utilizing uh, really state resources uh, as well as private monies, uh, as well as some federal credits that get syndicated and bring equity in uh, to reboot a series of buildings that really had no life in them. Yeah, and did you you mentioned Boston, New York? Did you look around New England and kind of get ideas? Because you you drive around Boston today, the seaport, and there's cranes everywhere. Yeah. Uh, did you kind of get that? Uh, well, I think we knew that. Uh, I don't know if there's any additional lesson one could get. Um, you know, we we recognized. Um, you know, small cities have a different dynamic than the large central cities like yes. Boston and New York. Um, but we also recognized that we could very easily struggle and do in some ways struggle like, you know, Worcester and, and Springfield struggle. Um, and and in Connecticut, in the case of Connecticut, Waterbury and Bridgeport struggle. So uh, we had to recognize um, the national demographic trend uh, better than it had been happening and try to apply it here to similar ways that it's been applied in, in Boston and the Back Bay area where it's pretty hot right now. And as well as uh, you know, parts of uh, Brooklyn and other places in the Northeast that have capitalized on this. Philadelphia is seeing something similar. Um, you know, Washington D.C. is on fire, um, but you're not seeing it happening in Baltimore. You're not seeing it happening in, in Trenton, and it's not necessarily happening in Albany. So there are places that aren't catching this wave, and there are others that are really you know rewriting the book. And uh, you know, we we could have gone either way. To be honest with you. Um, yeah. So it seems uh, like you're being proactive. We're, we are being proactive, and, and it's not necessarily to everyone's liking. Um, there's always going to be a tension between, you know, how public dollars leverage private. But it's um, it's a strategy that we felt we had to do here, or we would we would miss an economic uh, demographic wave uh, that's playing out um, purely by not taking the right actions. So we we got more aggressive than perhaps they can be or they are in other similar-sized cities in the Northeast. And then talk about Front Street. Drove by there the other day. It seems like it's doing pretty well downtown. Yeah, Front Street's part of a larger effort uh, that was launched really at, uh, two governors, three governors ago, um, as part of the um, convention center, or what had been known as Adrian's Landing. Uh, at one time, it was going to be the home of the Patriots. Yes, uh, I remember that. But uh, the, the craft deal collapsed amongst uh, lots of moving pieces. Uh, as a consequence, the state at that time pursued uh, the development of the convention center, hotel, uh, museums, and an area called Front Street, 
which is a recreation of an old area that had been in downtown Hartford. It had gotten bulldozed in the 50s and 60s. It's part of urban renewal. Uh, they wiped out the old Front Street, uh, which had been an old ethnic uh, retail residential area. Um, the new Front Street is um, heavily underwritten by the state in the sense of, uh, of clearing the land, cleaning the land, prepping the infrastructure. The private development came along about about 10 years ago, started getting legs maybe five years ago, and now is nearly 90% occupied uh, with restaurants and, and theaters. Uh, a residential component has just been completed. It's fully occupied. The Yukon campus has been inserted, hopes to open this fall. And then we are now talking about another phase of residential coming along next year. So the elements now have started to catch fire. Uh, but it's a, been a long-term effort on, on the state of Connecticut's effort to jumpstart this part of the riverfront. Now, now of course, we a lot of good news. Uh, we have to, I can't have, well, I have it on the line, we have to didn't talk about Dunkin' Donuts Park in downtown. What, what's, first of all, just give, if you give our listeners the timeline, people are not aware of this project, building a minor league ballpark in downtown Hartford, double uh, A affiliate, New Britain Rockets, now moving to Hartford, Hartford Yard Goats. Uh, for the Colorado Rockies, Double A affiliate. Uh, what's the latest with this? You know, you, you hear in the news the uh, FBI research uh, interviewing people, the uh, center plan suing the city, for, and but then you drive by the ballpark and you think, hey, you know what? It is almost done. Uh, what, what's the latest with the ballpark there, Duncan Donuts Park in downtown Hartford? Yeah, that that actually was an initiative of the city of Hartford, not not us. Yeah. Um, we're a quasi state agency that works with state and, and uh, private dollars, but the city launched an initiative to uh, build a minor league park. Uh, it ran into construction headaches. Uh, the first developer was released from the project, and there's been a series of consequences from that. Uh, they actually missed their first season, which was last season. The team pretty much played on the road. Um, but um, the ballpark is, uh, the bond had been pulled, the insurance guys stepped in, new contractors were hired. Uh, the park is scheduled to open April 13th um, this year, and it, within what is that five six weeks from now? Yes. Uh, the team will play its first game. Uh, there may even be I, I hear I don't know for sure. I hear there might even be a couple games before that with some colleges playing in there. But uh, the first official game for the uh, yard goats, and, and don't ask me what a yard goat is. I still don't know. But um, <laughs> the um, the team will play on the 13th of April um, for its opener. And uh, that's the latest that I know of. Now there's been subsequent lawsuits and and uh, you know investigations and all kinds of accusations that will probably take several years to sort of sort through. Um, that'll be between the city and the original developer, as well as the insurance groups and probably the team. And I guess that's kind of a you know a, a headache that'll hang on you for a while. Um, but the team will be in there. Um, it's about a 6,000-seat building. Um, it allows uh, for some expansion, I guess, if they ever needed to. I don't think it's envisioned anytime soon. Um, it is an expensive little park, but it reads and feels like a, a major league park. I mean, uh, uh, other than sense of scale, uh, you've got major league features in this park that are akin to some of the newest ballparks in the country. Um, and uh, it sits right there at the heart of downtown. Uh, looking at the skyline as as all these little parks now do, yes. And um, you know it, it bookends a part of the city that has been disconnected because of the highway system for so many years, uh, in an effort to try to reconnect that side of the side of the downtown with the the rest of it. Um, 
the city opted to put the park there. Um, and so, you know, it's it's moving forward. Uh, it's uh, I think the latest number on it is like seventy one million dollar enterprise, that, uh, which uh, staggers most people. Um, but uh, it is what it is, and it looks like it's going to turn the lights on in about six weeks. And and just looking aside from everything else, you must be excited at least for residents in the city. You mentioned the younger people they have a chance to do stuff uh, downtown at night, uh, traditionally when after work hours downtown. Yeah, uh, it will offer that. Uh, you know, there's a whole uh, question who, you know, minor league park plays to a kind of a family dynamic, um, you know, more than perhaps college sports do or or a professional major league sports do. I mean, you, the families get in, but, you know, affordability has always been the issue. Uh, so you get a uh, uh, question as to who uh, is really the target audience on this ballpark. Um, and then there are some who argue that, you know, the, the city residents – uh, will will not necessarily support, but and it's debatable whether the regional folks will. I think it'll all shake itself out in the next few months. I think it's going to have support because it's going to be a fun little ballpark. And, yeah, uh, you know, and and it'll develop as it will, and it probably will have your average attendance, you know, for minor league sports, which is probably in the four thousand seat range or something, and and it'll go forward. And it depends on how good the team is, we'll have attendance or not. You know, I mean, if it was affiliated with Boston. Or, or one of the New York teams, it probably would have a lot more of a profile and, and, and uh, uh, interest by by the local fan base. And no one really knows what the Colorado Rockies are all about here. But, uh, yes. you know, it's ball. It's ball, and uh, it'll be a nice warm evening and have a beer and enjoy the game. There you go. All right, now last couple minutes that we have, I'd like to get to the XL Center. This is an arena I grew up going to. Uh, a lot of good memories back in the Hartford Whalers. Uh, mid 90s 80s uh, but uh, now it's on you know there was a 35 million dollar renovation a couple years ago uh, I was there actually uh, last Saturday for the SMU UConn game and uh, that I was at that bar area in the end zone it looked pretty good just talk about that renovation first and what was done and then then we can get to the next bigger one yeah well we took over the building uh, as an agency of the state we took over the building from the city uh, slash another state agency uh, about four years ago uh, it had been, uh, it is still, in fact, a city-owned facility, but it had been managed by different state agencies over, over time. Uh, we absorbed it because we were putting under one umbrella multiple state entertainment facilities. We, we have the convention facilities, we have the XL, we have the Rensselaer Field, where uh, UConn plays its football games, and then, of course, we have the tennis facilities down in New Haven, where we have a, a women's tennis event uh, every year. So XL fit into our mission statement and an opportunity to kind of get some economies of scale and and reduce the tension between the buildings where they might have competing events and, and the like. Um, as we got in there, we found the building had really grown tired. Um, it's 40 years old. It's the average age of an arena in America is maybe 20. Um, you know, they kind of run on a steam around 15, 20. So this is a building that sort of lapped itself. Um, and, and it just needed a major boost. Um, as a consequence, we put in about $35 million into the building uh, to get at a variety of things, not least of them being some of the heavy mechanical systems where you, we literally can't buy parts for it anymore. Um, and it's some replacement of those things because they were killing us on operational side. Um, the, the other side of the coin, of course, is revenue generation. And it's a traditional old arena with all the seats being more or less the same and the skyboxes in the sky. Yes. Well, in the world today, no one wants to be up in the sky for the dollars that they charge. They want to be down on the floor or on the ice. 
and they want all the features that annual skyboxes had at a smaller scale. So people want club seats, terrace seats, loge seats, uh, access to private bathrooms, access to uh, waitress service, uh, you know, higher-end foods, and, and, you know, sitting right there uh, on, the, on the game plate. That's a dynamic this building can't uh, produce. Uh, in its current format, it has to be really pulled apart and put back together that way. Uh, that would increase revenues, lower expenses, and hopefully make the building more competitive. In a marketplace today, that's really dominated by the casinos on one end of us and with Springfield developing an entertainment complex to the north of us. Uh, it's kind of the future of the building has to be repositioned. Uh, but the $35 million kind of bought us uh, a window to put together the long-term transformation strategy uh, and um, bought us some improvements that helped us manage the building, uh, allowed us to uh, deal with some of the issues that go into just the bump and grind of events from you know, sound systems and, and light systems and IT networks and things like that. Uh, but it also built into the building a few uh, facilities for the teams, new locker rooms, uh, in particular for UConn uh, sports as well as uh, minor league hockey. Uh, extra locker rooms so we can do tournaments, which we didn't have previously, and um, some fan amenities, uh, one of which was we knocked out an area of seats and we built what we call the fan club, uh, which is an area where essentially uh, an everyman, we call it the everyman's bar as well, uh, its first work and name was the everyman's bar, where we basically said, look, we're not going to charge someone a premium to go sit in a good seat. You know, the taxpayer owns this building, taxpayer has been paying to keep it alive, Taxpayers should be able to walk in and have a beer and have a good seat. Uh, so let's build an area where we can uh, deliver a bar-like social area that allows uh, anybody with a ticket to walk in and, and chat with their buddies and hang around and enjoy the sport from a, from a different perspective uh, than simply sitting in your seat, you know, seven seven or eight seats in, knocking people over every time you want to get up to get a beer or go to the bathroom. So. That was the intent behind the fan club. It has been phenomenally successful. Uh, it has jumped the concessions from that end of the building by a multiple of four, which is money in our pocket, frankly, and argued uh, to many people who didn't fully understand what we were trying to do, argued really why we need to restructure the building and build more similar type um, opportunities into the structure. And so the fan club is... You know, it's down there, it's on the far end of the building, but it's behind the net, and it gives people who are hockey fans, you know, a great seat, uh, even for a few minutes to go over and have a beer and chat with their buddies and not disrupt the rest of the people sitting around you. Um, and we're now told we underbuilt it, which is kind of funny because when we built it, people were yelling at us we were moving too many seats out of the building for it. So, um, <laughs> you know, you never quite get it right, I suppose, but... Um, it's um, it's a feature of the building that speaks to where the new buildings are today, the new facilities. And I tell people, you know, the Fleet Center is 20 years old already, I think, or whatever they call it these days. Yeah, TD Garden. CD, okay, there you go. I call it the Fleet Center. I think it was called uh, Shawmut Center. I mean, I don't know yes. what the names were in this place. But to me, you know, I, I grew up in the garden, so I, I, I kind of ignore the new buildings. But um, <laughs> I think... You know, I tell people, you know, Boston is, you know, TD is 20 years old. They're about ready to reboot it. They're not already rebooting it. And, and they look at me and I go, and, and we're, think about it, folks. We're 1960s design, 1970s construction, and we haven't done anything with it since. <laughs> so, you know, yes. uh, it's, a, it's a real effort, but we're up against 
tough budget times. We're up against uh, competing uh, proposals uh, from other you know parts of the state, and uh, you know it's hard to sell. Um, uh, $250 million transformation. Uh, a new building would cost, you know, $500 million plus. Yeah. We don't necessarily have a place to put it anyway. And we got a program in place that's mirrored after what they did with MSG down in the city where they kept the building operating while they renovated it. So it's a two- to three-year process of converting this facility, uh, which helps spread the budget and spread the pain and keep the building alive. And, and it's more of a slow transformation than it is a sudden you know, a uh, quick, cold uh, slap, uh, as, as some buildings have become when they shut them down and rebuild them. But um, it's the only strategy that works shy of, frankly, just simply saying, okay, guys, we're done. Let's shut it down. Like the New Haven Coliseum. Yeah, I tell people, we can pursue the New Haven path. Um, you know, it's um, we're, we're kind of getting there. Uh, the annual operating subsidy is... Uh, you know, it's uh, it's deep, and uh, the event load is down because the building just doesn't produce the same kind of return to the promoters and the investors. Um, Plus and it's the down casinos, a little bit, too. you know. I'm sorry? Plus, the you know, Mohegan Sun, a great arena 30 minutes down the road. Well, yeah, they got an arena. It's a smaller building, so there is a little bit of a little bit different market niche, but fundamentally it's competitor. Um, and the uh doesn't have hockey, doesn't have an ice floor, but it gets the concerts, which are really the paydays. Um and they get the concerts because, frankly, they underwrite the concerts. They, they, you know, they, they write guarantees. We can't do that as a public agency. So, yes, you know, we live off of our success in selling the event. They live off their success of people coming in and hitting the casinos afterwards. So <laughs> it's a whole different kind of math. Talk about just look at the details. What would the two hundred fifty million buy for the arena? What's the basic principles of the new renovation? Essentially, we take the building has two bowls, and they. They basically feed one concourse today. So if you're down below, you climb up. If you're up on top, you climb down. They all go into the same corridor, and you fight for bathroom and you fight for concessions. Um, frankly, the seat in the lower bowl is much different than the seat in the upper bowl. <laughs> you know, it's what are you? What's it? Why are you paying to, to move up a roll? Um, today's buildings really create different price points, different opportunities. So what we're looking to do is split the bowls in the most simplest of worlds. The lower bowl will become a premium seating area, uh, which will allow us to build in the clubs and the concessions and the things that go with it. The upper bowl will have its own concourse. That's the big construction to wrap the upper bowl with its own deck, with its own concessions, its own um, retail, its own uh, restrooms. Uh, that will produce a revenue uh, model that is better than today's. The second major element of all this is we we have to really get at the systems in the building. The elevators, the escalators, the ice making, um, everything is fundamentally tired. Uh, and we just have to spend some money to, to improve it. I mean, at some point in life, the roof wears out and you've got to replace it. Um, that's kind of where we're at the building. Um, especially the history of that, you know. Well, especially been... the roof of that building is a sensitive yeah. subject, yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I compare it to, like, you know, an, an automobile. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you make repairs, you make repairs, you make more repairs, you start making repairs more frequently. You start wondering if the thing is going to start up on you. You, you hope the hell you don't get stuck with it someplace. And you finally, finally reach a point saying, i got to replace it. You know, yep. Yep. It's kind of where we're at. We've been making repairs. We're worried about our starting next morning. And uh, we still got to get to work with this thing. So um, uh, we're kind of at a point where we really need to replace the building. And 
the bones are good. I mean, it's a, it's a steel and concrete structure. I mean, you peel it down to that level and you put it back together. It's actually very large. It has an old exhibition hall uh, that really is uh, past its prime and has really been surpassed by the convention center now. So that actually turns out to be a bonus for us. It actually allows us to um, uh, build the building's mechanical systems and, and support structures, um, operational support structures, but I mean the kitchens and things of that nature, into the old exhibition hall. Uh, by doing that, we free up space under the seats, uh, which allow us now to build the uh, facilities to support the loge and clubs and terrace seat structures the new skybox, this quote-unquote boxes areas. That, in turn, allows us to build a second level of concourse um, that uh, helps us get through uh, the dynamic of the general admission ticket. Um, you, you mentioned the roof. Uh, when when the roof did collapse uh, some 30 years ago no, now. 1978, uh, yeah. Yeah, 40 years, whatever the heck it's been. Um when they put a new roof on, they actually expanded the building to, to accommodate the whalers and uh, yes. the NHL, and they expanded the seating capacity. Well, that's all fine and good, and in the 70s, seats were the whole thing that drove the show. But they didn't expand the concessions and the points of sale. They didn't expand the width of the restroom, uh, the number of restrooms, nor the width of the hallways. So it went from 12,000-something seats to 16,000-something seats, but it didn't have bathrooms and concessions to meet the new demand. So the building's always underperformed because you just can't physically get through the line. Um, and it's lost revenue because of it. So uh, today we overbuild restrooms. We, we overbuild concessions. There's not enough variety we can throw at you anymore in these buildings. Um, you know, you don't like your taco this way, we'll give it to you that way. You know, I mean, this building still works on hot dogs and popcorn. So, yes, um, big difference. The huge dynamic of lost business opportunity, which is critical to make these buildings perform today. I mean, it's all these, these are giant restaurants, and I'm going to get down to it, you know. And you're not serving the best food at the best premiums. You're not making the money. Um, yeah. And so we've lost a lot of opportunity. And the whole idea of the uh, transformation is not only to lower the cost, uh, and to offer uh, greater revenue production, but also to attract the fan uh, who's got multiple opportunities today, and not least of them being the big screen in his basement, um, and to attract the promoters who can make a better VIG uh, playing our building than someone else's building. And therein lies the business plan. Um, but it's up against uh, the need for public dollars at a uh, at a difficult budgetary window. And uh, what what is the timeline? With do we have for the budget and possible? Well, we're, we're suggest well, the budget is uh, in, under consideration as you and I speak. Uh, it's before the legislature. It generally, well, it's statutorily under constitution should be done by June. Never always. It doesn't quite always make that <laughs> deadline. <laughs> but you would assume this uh, this spring uh, to be adoption of a budget. Inside of the governor's proposal is a two year. It's a, it's a biannual budget, so it's a two-year budget that uh, the governor has um, promoted uh, two years, the first two years of a four-year spending plan, basically breaking the $250 million into $125 in each of the two budget cycles. And that's in the capital plan, which is obviously on the investment side, not on the operating side. Uh, if it's approved, uh, we would be in a position in July 
to go out and uh, retain the design team, which has been working with us, but it's been conceptual, it's been preliminary, it's been, you know, uh, not really seriously down to the, you know, where do you knock the walls down and put them back up kind of level. Um, we would advance that, tighten the budget up, maybe make some value engineering, uh, make you know, get, get into the real real pricing of some of the replacement components, uh, and then probably do some land acquisition. That There's some parcels in and around the building we need to go forward with. Yeah, how's that work out of Northland? Are they willing to sell it, the lobby uh, area? Yeah, uh-huh. you know, the question is uh, price. I think they're, they're willing to sell it. Uh, the question is, can we agree on a, on a dollar differences? Uh, you know, we It's a very unique structure. Uh, it's difficult to price it. Um, it's sort of a mixture of retail, commercial, parking, public, you know, and you have to sort of allocate value to all of those. Um, so it's, um, it's a bit of a hairy negotiation. Uh, we, we, we've been having conversations, but they're really kind of incumbent on two things. Getting the appraisals done, and, and they're due in here now. I got one in that we're commenting on. I got a second due, uh, actually due now. Um, and uh, then, of course, getting the green light from the legislature. I'm not going to go make an offer if I had no money to buy it out. So uh, if the legislature comes through and it authorizes some funds for us, then uh, we would be in a position to take the appraisals and, and go up to Northland and make an offer. Okay, gotcha. And then you would uh, buy the land, and then construction would begin, I would say, in the next year or two? Yeah, the idea, ideally, we'd try to get at it a year from now to actually physically start changing the building. We'd spend the summers doing the heavy lifting and rolling cranes in on the floor and whatnot uh, to remove components and build components. Um, and then we basically go into operating hockey and basketball from October to March. Uh, we work behind the house on those months and then get back at it again and do that over a course of over three cycles. You know, in, it, it, I think it's so important, too. I was in Omaha recently at CenturyLink Arena. You could see that's a similar-sized city to Hartford, and you see the type of events they get, the swimming uh, the NCAA basketball tournament. I looked it up. The last NCAA basketball tournament in Hartford was March of 1998. Yeah. Uh, oh, you you can't get so. them today because the building doesn't have the facilities. Yes. You need you know you need four locker rooms. We had two. You know, so there's fundamentally you're out of the box. And so now we have four because uh, we built a couple swing ones uh, during the 35 million dollar exercise we went through uh, over the last couple of years. But they're small ones, but they're meant purposely to allow you to have a tournament and transition people through. But also other events like you know gymnastics and things like that that put more demand on events. And and you get nights where you have multiple events. We had a, a weekend uh, not too long ago where we had both a basketball game in the afternoon and a hockey game at night. Yeah, last Saturday. Yeah, so we had teams rolling through the building as we were sweeping them over. So you had to have swing space. But the NCAA, very simple dynamics, is like you need something like, yeah, these kids changing under the, under the stands, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about college athletes who are essentially pro, pro athletes, and, you know, that just sort of hurts you from the start. So, And that's why I don't think people are so enamored with the Whalers or the Islanders returning, but there's a lot of events like that you could still do very well, but you need, you need a new arena. There's nothing to talk about. And... Um, it would be nice to see for Hartford to get back on that limelight. You know, Selection Sunday with the UConn going every year, the, you know, UConn women, men, you want an arena to f- reflect that same success, I would think, especially with Connecticut. Yeah, and, and UConn, you know, frankly, the model that um, we're putting together here would drive more revenues to UConn athletics than the current building does. Um, and that's all critical for UConn because if the league it's in today and the competition it's getting today is different than when it was in the Big East. And it needs to to generate 
you know, returns in other places. And this building will help them get there. Um, without it, they're up at Gamble, up at, uh, you know, on campus with 9,000 seats, and you can't even buy a beer in the place. So, um, you know, it's a different kind of uh, uh, economic return. Well, you got the American Conference coming up next week, and, uh, you know, hopefully the bright things are ahead for the XL Center. Well, we're hopeful, too. Uh, we're hopeful the tournament uh, will have a bunch of teams in here. We're hoping UConn goes a good two or three rounds um, because, obviously, they load the house. And, uh, you know, and, and we need them to do well in the tournament to have a uh, postseason. So, um. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for the time. I really appreciate it. It's fascinating to hear about the Hartford development. A lot of good things happening, the housing, and then we got to the sports with the XL Center, it, you know. Uh, like it or not, it's going to be an interesting time period the next couple of years here in uh, downtown Hartford. Yeah, they, you can you can definitely say that. So, well, thanks so much for joining sure us on the Lights Camera Sports Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time. Sure enough, enjoy talking to you. Okay, take right. care. Bye bye. Thanks once again for Michael Fairmouth to come on for the Lights Camera Sports Podcast. Do a little sports, a little development there. It was interesting to get his take. And thank you so much for watching and listening to another Lights, Camera, Sports podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, search Lights, Camera, Sports, or on SoundCloud. This is Mike Galtieri saying so long and good night.